I'm Leah Simone Bowen, the host of Podcast Playlist on CBC. We're a podcast discovery show, and we love a great story. So each week, we highlight the podcast we think you should check out. The show is a classic. Love how they select their topics. It's great. And from time to time, we're joined by some of the biggest names in podcasting. My name is Jamie Loftus. John Green. I'm Michael Hobbs. My name is Nicole Byer, and I have a podcast recommendation. You can find Podcast Playlist on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Thursday, June 17th. This is the Q Podcast. I'm Ali Hassan, sitting in for Tom Power. Today on the show, I chat with triple Emmy award-winning actor Uzo Aduba. Now, you might remember her from her role as Suzanne Crazy Eyes Warren. That's where she won two of the Emmys, Orange is the New Black. Well, we're now going to see her in her first leading role as a therapist in the HBO reboot of In Treatment. And I watched the show, the original, which was over 12 years ago with Gabriel Byrne. And even then, without any acting experience, I was like, this is so much acting. This is two people for so long. So she has her work cut out for her. And she does say it's a super challenging role, but, but the most fulfilling of her career. That was a great chat. Also, Jonathan Adams. They are a two-spirit cremate baritone singer who, who's done a ton of reflection on reconciling European classical music and the suppressed traditions of, of rich indigenous music. It was a very illuminating conversation with them. And uh, have you ever not known where to cling to when the rain set in? I would have liked to known you. All right. What I'm trying to say is Tom's chat with Elton John rounds out the show today and it all starts now. While the pandemic has us all talking about our physical health, it's the lockdown that has us questioning our mental health. So in these times, especially, we've got a good show for you to watch. HBO has rebooted its series In Treatment after 10 years off the air. You might remember Gabriel Byrne as the therapist in the original series. Now, Uzo Aduba fills his chair. She stars as Dr. Brooke Taylor a therapist trying to navigate her clients through the pandemic while dealing with her own losses. This is Uzo's first leading role, although, wrap your head around this, she has already won three Emmy Awards. The first two were for her scene-stealing role as Suzanne Crazy Eyes Warren in Orange is the New Black, and most recently she won for playing Shirley Chisholm, the first black, wom- first black woman to run for president in Mrs. America. I got to speak to Uzo over the phone from Los Angeles. Welcome to Q, Uzo. Hi, how are you? Very good. Thank you. I'm very happy you're here. I, I wanted to ask you this uh, first, something I read about. The creators of In Treatment went after you for the role, but what was it in the end that drew you to, uh, to your character specifically, Dr., Dr. Brooke Taylor? I was drawn to, well, a couple ideas. I was drawn to this idea of what is the life of a therapist? What does that look like for some of them? And I was really moved by um, her pain and loss out of work life, and I understood what meant and um, what it meant to lose track of your pain. And I was also so captured by this idea of, wow, they do this all day. You know, this is her job all day long, and <laughs> to talk to people and try and help walk them through their 
what it is that they're going through. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, you know, while they are walking people through and helping people, as you say, some of the clients actually don't want to be in therapy. Is that something that you could relate to on a personal level? Not the same way as they're going through it. I mean, I go to therapy. I don't think it, I understand there are some times you don't want to be there, you know, or it's challenging to talk about some things, but I always think the process is worth it on the other side. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get you know too far into the weeds of this. Therapy can be such a personal uh, journey, but I was wondering if you brought some of your own experiences with therapy into this role at all. Well, as far as the listening is concerned, yes, um, and the empathic approach, um, yes. Um, I think that's <clears throat> something I'm self-sensitive to with... Uh, the patients and some of their stories. I think also what I really gathered out of it, um, not necessarily from my own sessions, but that therapy is, like you say, deeply personal and individual and um, a job trying to understand where the patient is and meeting them where they're at, meeting them there, not trying to push them further than their comfort zone, trying to gently bring them out where it's comfortable for them. What do you think holds people back from going to therapy a lot of the times? The truth, I think. You know, the truth, I think it's scary, but it is also what sets you free. I think that's what holds people back sometimes, I imagine. Let's listen to a clip. Your character is grieving the death of her own father and is confronted by her best friend, Rita. Since when do we wait to throw out the life preserver until the drowning person asks for Drowning? It? Hardly. I would be drowning if I was dealing with everything you are. Your patience, your father, Shelly. The big-ass house all alone. I am not drowning. I am furious. Day in and day out, I feel like all these people are looking to me to tell them what to do about this moment we are in. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what to tell myself. That's a scene from the show In Treatment. My guest, Uzo Adubastars, is Dr. Brooke Taylor, a therapist. Uzo, your character right there said, this moment we are in, that is a very loaded thing. What, what is she grappling with there? I think the, the grieving, you know, the, the loss. You know, I think we're living, we all collectively are living, have lived through, are living through um, this, this of what was, and um, not 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 so different, but slightly um, different from the loss of a loved one, you know, our, our lives as we understood them to exist, you know, and how to make sense of it in this new new world. And by the way, also, you know, some of those people are experiencing actual real life loss, and. Um, Trying to make sense of it for her patients is challenging, I think, for her when she can hardly make sense of it for herself. Mm-hmm. You know, as you talk about this real life loss, I, I have to say I'm so sorry to hear that you're, well, you, you know, you lost your mother to cancer before the show started. I, I, I can't imagine what that was like. My mother is right now in 
chemotherapy for, for, for stage four cancer as well. And I, I know what a distraction that is for myself, my whole family. You were able to go and play a character that had recently lost a parent after having your mom pass away. How are you able to do that? Because of her, with her, in memory of her. You know, my mom was and remains my hero, um, one part because of what an incredible strength and guide and wisdom and discipline um, and just a fighter uh, she was in her entire life and even to the very end uh, with such a dignity and, um, you know, grace. You know, I knew she was with me the entire time, quite frankly, in my heart, and she wanted me to do it, you know. The last thing she knew I was doing and was like, go get them. We can do it. <laughs> yeah, people who know you um, will know those those images uh, of, uh, of your mother at award shows with you and a huge champion of your career. My love and my sympathies to you and your mom, by the way. My love and my just to y'all. Oh, thank you. I read that this was a very challenging and yet very fulfilling role, the most fulfilling role you've played. What was it that made this a, a particularly demanding character? I understood what her pain and loss felt like, the jumble of all of that, while also simultaneously trying to go through the rigor of your job and putting on a, I don't know if a brave face is the right word, but that sort of thing. It was such a eye-opener and a great reminder, I guess, um, of how not to do that or, not, or making sure not to do that, maybe. If you're just tuning in, I'm Ali Hassan filling in for Tom Power. My guest is Uzo Aduba. She's in a new show called In Treatment, and you may know her from this show. Thank you for your cooperation. Oh, we say thank you, we say please, and excuse me when we sneeze. That's the way we do what's right. We have manners, we're polite. That's my guess, Uzo Aduba, playing Suzanne Crazy Eyes Warren in Orange is the New Black. She won two Emmys in that role. Uzo, you went from playing a character whose mental health was precarious uh, to now a therapist. Do you ever find yourself thinking about your, you know, Suzanne Warren's character, who you spent so much time in uh, when you were playing Dr. Brooke Taylor? Oh, absolutely. I thought about her, I mean, I, when I was starting, you know, um, when I was doing Orange, of course, I would, I was, you know, really resistant to calling her crazy eyes because, you know, she doesn't see herself as that. Um, she's a woman having her own experience and going through her own, going through life the best she knows how. And when I was on the other side of the table uh, or the, the, the chairs, I guess, in a different seat, you know, is two things. Number one, that I thought about. One, as Brooke Taylor, Dr. Brooke Taylor, I would, the beginning, I said, you know, I wonder what, Suzanne's life could have been like if she'd had uh, Dr. Brooke Taylor. Um, and then I also would think about the same, trying to be as gentle with 
the people who come into the office um, as I wanted people to be with Suzanne. Crazy eyes. It's very interesting how these... You played, you know, on, on the one hand, you played somebody who struggled with mental health issues. Now you're playing somebody who is, um, you know, uh, doling out the advice and is an expert on, on mental health. And in, in your personal life, you have um, also had experiences with therapy. Really, you're all over the map when it comes to therapy. <laughs> you know, there's a level of expertise that I feel is, is definitely there. Thank you. But, you know, also we have, like, an amazing group, Josh and Jen, like, I can't say again, who've been just incredible with the show, putting together such a show. And, you know, more and more, as the stories of each of these characters through one through four come and um, we watch each of these characters unpack themselves, I realize they did such a great... they just did such a great job, I thought, in isolating the different ways in which mental health exists and those conversations can exist. Um, especially by the time you reach the end of it, you really come to understand the sort of narrow way that we focused that conversation, especially now as you're watching sort of the, the world really start to have that conversation, you realize they did such a great job beautifully lacing the different forms of mental health into our show and down to even, I thought, by not making Dr. Brooke Taylor this, you know, all-knowing, perfect person, Layla has this one line where she says, oh, so you don't know, so you don't know everything which I thought was such a great line delivered by Quintessa, because this idea exists that the therapist knows everything and we know nothing, and we are the ones needing to be fixed, when the truth of the matter is that everyone, including a Dr. Brooke Taylor, everyone could benefit from being a part of healthy conversation. Sure. I want to, we just got a couple of minutes left. I want to ask a career question uh, in a way. It's not about the three Emmys uh, that you've won. It's, in fact, on the flip side, because I heard that you were planning to quit acting on the very day that you went to audition for Orange is the New Black. Can you tell me how you got to that point? (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, it sounds crazy to tell that story now, but it very much was my truth. The day I quit, got orange was the day I quit acting because I had just started to venture into the film and television landscape. And if you remember, film and television were very different than, you know, there was no Netflix at that point doing original content. And um, I had been auditioning for the very first time in that area, and I had never really seen anyone like myself in that space, maybe say, you know, Whoopi Goldberg. And um, I hadn't seen anybody there, really. And I kept getting no, told no, 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 no. And I just thought, you know what, there is no place for me in this conversation at this table. And I was just so, um, I just thought that that was, I was reaching for the wrong fruit, you know? 
And um, so I went home and I decided that the universe, God, everything was telling me this is not what I should be doing with my life. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. I need to find another pathway. I'm a child. I'm first-generation Nigerian. I said, you know, I think when I was a kid, my parents always thought I was going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go to law school, and I'm going to just go and, you know, do that. I'm trying to do something that's not for me. And I got home, and I got the call from my agents that this little show called Orange is the New Black that was going to be on Netflix streaming wanted me to come and play a part called Crazy Eyes on it. Netflix hadn't been doing any original content at that point, so I thought it was going to be a web series, but it turned out not to be one, (laughs) of course. Um, Yeah, and it's just thank you to Genji Kohane and Netflix. Changed my life. Destined to succeed, it feels like. We have uh, less than a minute left. Final question for you, given that you're on a show called In Treatment, in such a difficult year, what what has been uh, what has been therapeutic for you? Mm, what has been therapeutic for me? Well, besides watching Real Housewives, um, <laughs> the, <laughs> whatever it takes. <laughs> Listen, I'm not. I didn't say that. It was I felt guilty about it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, I like uh, <laughs> spa days. I love, love, love taking walks. You know what I've actually recently found again that I had taken a break from just in the space of, you know, being with my mom and everything. I love now being back on the bike, my Peloton, Mm. and um, time with friends and family. I know that you're a former track star, so I thought I might hear something about, you know, activity and movement in there, definitely. Yeah. Housewives is a surprise, but we've all got those <laughs> up our sleeves. I'm ashamed to, to tell you how much uh, Bachelorette I've watched, you know? <laughs> oh, you and my sister both. <laughs> yeah. Uzo, thank you so much for your time today. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Uzo Aduba. She stars in the reboot of the series In Treatment. You can watch it now on Crave. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Have a listen to this. What you're hearing right there is the remarkable voice of Jonathan Adams singing Bach. Jonathan is a two-spirit cremate baritone. 
They split their time between uh, Montreal and Edmonton. And Jonathan has been deeply immersed in the world of Baroque music. They studied and performed in Europe for a decade before returning to Canada, where they began to explore the long-suppressed history of Cree and Métis music. They performed a show, show-stopping solo in the critically acclaimed Messiah Complex production last year and now serve as Early Music Vancouver's Summer Artist in Residence. This weekend, Jonathan will perform as part of the Montreal Baroque Festival. Jonathan Adams joins me now from Montreal. Jonathan, welcome to Q. Hi, Ali. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. I want to start uh, kind of the beginning before we get into uh, your, your, your now, your present-day work. You started mm. playing piano at five. Do you yeah. remember a moment when you realized that music was definitely going to be central to your life? Oh, man. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I started super young. My, my family was very supportive. And so it always kind of felt like it was going to be a, a part of my life um, in some way. But I, I definitely thought I was going to go down the piano route. Uh, my, my grandmother, uh, my adoptive grandmother, uh, was a ballerina in the Royal Winnipeg Ballet mm. growing up. And so she, uh, she really encouraged me to, you know, listen to Tchaikovsky, to, to Bach, to all of the music that she danced to. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there were lots of formative moments, but I guess it was in my mid-teens that I started to realize that singing was, gonna, was going to uh, carry me through mm-hmm. into the musical profession. Yeah. You mentioned, um, you know, your, your, your adopted uh, grandparents and you were adopted by white parents. But yeah. I also talked about your Cree Métis heritage. Were you in touch with your Indigenous identity as you were growing up? Uh, not so much, not so closely. It was it was a bit difficult. Um, you know, my my uh, family is yeah, are white settlers, um, and my brother is also adopted. Uh, but we um, we had the experience of maybe seeing um, Cree or Métis culture in the context of museums. You know, going to Fort Edmonton Park or Wanuskewin outside Saskatoon. So I, I really saw it as something that was kind of in the past. And it wasn't until my mid-20s that I realized, you know, this is a living culture and something mm. I can connect to. And, and speaking of that connection, I, I did read that you were connected with your birth mother. What did you learn when, when that happened? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, you know, a, a difficult reconnection in some way. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a long legacy of cultural and religious indoctrination among uh, indigenous people so like a lot of a lot of um, indigenous folks have been converted in you know to to christianity mm-hmm. um, and, and are practicing christians um, I, i'm not I'm, I'm really trying to connect to my uh, indigenous traditional spirituality so yeah there's there's some some uh, some tension there but uh, but it's it's uh, more about for me connecting to the community and to the culture. And that's something that I don't think you need, um, you know, a bloodline for. It's more something uh, that, you know, if you are Indigenous, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, can, you can connect to it through, through songs, through, through, um, through uh, friends, through making your own family. It, it, I'm wondering, as you speak about this bloodline and these connections, did your uh, biological family have a connection to music? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they were. Um, so my uncles were singers. Um, and yeah, I, I think more than just to music, my, my family was really connected to ceremony. And, you know, song is such an important part of ceremony. My great grandfather was a medicine man in the Big Stone Cree Nation. 
Um, so yeah, I've I've been you know I sing a lot of religious music myself mm-hmm. from a sort of from a sort of uh, historically informed place. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you know we've we've been communicators in our family for a long time. It really is interesting, even though, even you know growing up without knowing your biological family, music clearly ran through you, right? Ran through absolutely. Your, your yeah. mm-hmm. I want to talk about this time that you spent uh, performing, studying, and performing in Europe. Yeah. Because it was during that time that you began exploring your, your own family's roots. What was that like to have that sort of awakening, but but having an awakening so far away from home? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was uh it was strange. I mean, I knew that, you know, I wasn't gonna find many other indigenous folks in Amsterdam. Um I was based there for eight years and before there I was based in London. Um, you know, I studied at the Royal Academy of Music and then the Conservatorium in Amsterdam, and it was really formative uh, for me. But I guess I just started thinking about all of the histories that I was telling through my singing, and it was mostly white histories, white European histories. And so it, it became really important for me to reframe that, to recontextualize and, and make sure that people understand that um, we were a big part and we are a big part of um of of that connection of european music to this continent of turtle island that mm. we're, that we're on now i mentioned in your intro that you identify as two spirit mm-hmm. uh, how has that shaped how you uh how you perform or how you see your own role as an artist yeah it's um it's a source of inspiration because you know two spirit people have been revered as communicators as um medicine people as uh, um, holding spiritual functions within community for for uh, since time immemorial in uh, indigenous communities all over Turtle Island. So for me, that's, uh, you know, an opportunity for me to connect to a long lineage of storytellers. Um, at the same time, it, it allows me because I'm, I'm gender fluid to to tell stories from a variety of perspectives, whether they're originally meant to be told by men, women, or or, or other um, other uh, gender identifying folks, that I can do that with some authority because I I've, I've sort of lived the in between. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Q. I'm Ali Hassan, sitting in for Tom Power. My guest is the baritone vocalist Jonathan Adams, who performs this weekend as part of Montreal's Baroque Festival. Jonathan, when you returned to Canada, which was just a few years ago, you began delving into that history of Indigenous and Métis music you've been talking about. What what surprised you most about what you discovered? Well, I mean, there's such a rich lineage of Métis music um, in Canada. A lot of the music comes uh, melodically and textually from European sources. And so a lot of French settlers, you know, coming uh, to Canada through throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th century brought their music with them, of course. So when um, when I'm looking at this music, I'm looking at the synthesis of French, sometimes Cree, sometimes Ojibwe, sometimes um, other indigenous musics that are all coming together to form this new, very, very rich repertoire. Mm-hmm. Mm. You've talked about this this active suppression. You know those songs that you're talking about were actively suppressed, especially through the residential school system here in Canada. Yeah, children abused just for singing those songs. I I, I have to ask how how it must feel for you to sing them now. Yeah, it's um, it, it's poignant. It's uh, weighty sometimes, but uh, 
you know, these songs carry with them so much love and so much um, commitment. Uh, and I, I mean that in, in, a, in the way that uh, these songs were stewarded and cared for and transmitted over many generations by my, by my ancestors and transcestors. So when I, when I sing them, I feel I'm connecting to those ancestors and transcestors. And, and I'm, I'm, I really feel they're singing through me. Mm. I, that's very interesting to hear about this connection that you speak of, because I wanted to ask you if there was any uh, sort of conflict there. You know, the indigenous children were taught to sing European classical songs instead of their own traditional song. That music was used as a tool of colonization. Mm -hmm. But in your life, it's an art form that you have, you know, made your own and and profited from. Is that something you need to reconcile? Are there conflicting emotions about that? Yeah, you know, I just hosted a panel about this uh, for Early Music Vancouver with the, you know, the Stolo and uh, Quagil Mezzo, Marion Newman, the Stalo scholar, Dylan Robinson, and uh, the Inuvialui Danane Cree director, um, uh, Renata Arluk. So we, we talked about the ways in which, you know, the, the music has been used to oppress our own cultures um, as Indigenous people, but also because we were forced to sing this music and we were forced um, to, to give our own musics up, um, this European music is our own now. It doesn't belong to Europeans. It doesn't belong to white mm-hmm. um, settlers alone. It belongs to us because, you know, through through yeah, colonial devices like the potlatch ban and residential schools, um, through the church, um, we were forced to sing a lot of religious music and a lot of classical music. Um, so now I sing it in a way that um, hopefully transmits the whole truth of what that music um, is used to do. Mm-hmm. I want to play something for you. Now, this is a little of your part in the Messiah Complex. Okay. A rea- uh, it's a reimagining of Handel's Messiah. Mm. the Lord, the Lord of hosts, at once a little while, and I will share. The heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will share. I can feel that reverberating through my chest. That is a, a project that brought together a number of Indigenous artists and other Canadians of, uh, of diverse backgrounds. And you created something entirely new from something very traditional. Do you see your own work as part of a, a movement of Indigenous artists at this point? Yeah, I absolutely do. You know, um, so so I, I worked on that project with uh, Renata Arluk, uh, who's the director of uh, Indigenous Arts at BAMP Center, and uh, and also Joel Ivany, who directs Against the Grain. Um, and uh, it was really meaningful to be able to tell a story that's that I that I sing yearly you know Messiah's uh, that sort of Christmas chestnut um, that everybody knows but you know to get to reimagine it, it it made me feel connected and it actually helped to connect me to friends like uh, like uh, Leila Gilday um, you know who just won a Juno and you know uh, you know Jeremy Dutcher and and other other folks uh, Chris mm-hmm. Dirksen you know these these this sort of Renaissance 
that we're experiencing of Indigenous arts and sort of confessional storytelling in Canada. I mean, it's it's really, uh, it's such an honor to be part of that in some small way. Mm-hmm. Before I let you go, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, Baroque Music Festival that is happening in Montreal that you're part of. Yeah, so on Friday, um, we opened the festival with two cantatas of Bach um, in a program called Bach Kathedral. Um, I'll be singing a solo cantata by Bach called Der Friede sei mit dir, um, and it's uh, it's a beautiful work. Uh, I'm I'm very excited about that. I perform with uh, Ensemble Caprice and under the direction of Matthias Mauta. On the Sunday, there's um, a, a um, the opportunity for folks in Montreal to come down to the Rialto Theater um, and watch a, a, a film that I made in the McCord Museum amongst the Indigenous collection of artifacts of Korean Métis songs. Mm-hmm. And that, that concert's called um, Méantre Musicale. Yeah. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit, uh, on that particular film? Yeah, yeah. So I made that film a few weeks ago with mm. the ensemble, the vile consort um, Les Voix Humaines, and Susie Knapper, its director. Um, she also co-directs the Montreal Baroque Festival. So we, we were invited to come into the McCord Museum and, and I was singing amongst all of these artifacts um, that are from Indigenous nations across Turtle Island. Um, it was really meaningful to be able to sing the songs of my ancestors among pieces that they potentially would have worn. Um, we, uh, we sang, um, you know, some French music too that came from the 17th century. So it's really a picture of um, how um, Indigenous and French music um, collided and synthesized. And uh, yeah, I, I really hope people enjoy it. I'm sure they will. And I, I'm glad, I was going to ask you if it's virtual. You don't have to ask these questions in this environment all yes. the time. It's virtual. But you're saying people can actually come and attend. And uh, It's and, actually, and, yeah, it's not virtual <laughs> for not once. For- it's, uh, it's a, um, a live um, screening of the film. Um, so that, yeah, that happens, I think, at 2 o'clock, 2.30 and 3 p.m. Um, on uh, Sunday the 21st or the 20th. I'm, I'm sort of uh, lost my uh, tra- lost track of time this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, so it's it's going to be a, a great event. And the uh, by the way, the uh, Bach Cathedral program, the opening concert of the festival is also at the um, uh, Theatre Rialto in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Final thing, Jonathan Adams, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I, uh, I, I'm really impressed by all the work you've done and I want to play your... Cree and Métis medley at this uh, point. That, I've, I'm being told uh, that you have a story about this song. Maybe you can set that up just before we, we play it. Absolutely, yeah. So this song, um, this, this medley is a combination of two songs. One is a, um, is a Métis song called J'ai fait une maîtresse. And uh, it's the story of a, of a person who's lost their love, um, whose love has left them or, or perhaps um, has, has been taken away. And he asks the nightingale, or they ask the nightingale um, in the forest to give them news of Marie-Lou, this lost love. And then I sing a Cree song that's in a language or that's in a dialect that is not any longer spoken. So it's very hard to find a translation of it. And I, I, I actually don't know the words that I'm singing. So um, I imagine that as the, the nightingale's response. So, you know, this, this person who's asking 
about Marie-Lou will never know. And, and when I sing this, I really think about, you know, the children who didn't come back, the missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and two spirits. You know, I, th I think about all the ways in which we've been displaced and disconnected from community as Indigenous folks. But, you know, the redeeming, the redeeming quality is the song of the nightingale and our connection to the land. Um, it holds our history, it holds our culture, it holds um, our connection to our ancestors. And, and so it's, it's always going to be there for us if, if we're uh, brave and uh, proud enough to, uh, to defend the land and the water. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time away from your festival prep to, to talk <laughs> thank to you. us today. Thanks, Ali. Jonathan Adams with Cree and Métis Medley. Jonathan will be performing at the Montreal Baroque Festival live this weekend. I'm Ali Hassan sitting in for Tom Power. Now, over the next week here at Q, you're going to be hearing a little more poetry on your radio than you might be accustomed to. And that is because the Griffin Poetry Prize, the country's most prestigious prize for poetry, will be announced next week. To celebrate, we thought it would be nice to hear some poetry from each of the three Canadian shortlisted poets. Today, you're going to hear from Yusuf Sadi. Yusuf is a Montreal-based poet and author. And he's nominated for the Griffin for his debut collection of poetry. It is called Pluviophile. And I say this as a former Montrealer. If you live in Montreal or you spent any time there, the poem you're about to hear might really hit home for you. Take it away, Yusuf. Hi, my name's Yusuf, and I'm going to be reading a poem called Mile End. It's from my first collection, Pluviophile, which was published by Nightwood Editions in April 2020. Um, so the poem I'm going to read in some sense, it's kind of a love poem for Montreal. I wrote it maybe seven or eight years ago after I'd just gone to the cemetery on the mountain, which is a lovely place in one of the quietest places in the city. And I think the poem was just trying to capture maybe some of the rhythms that one might feel in Montreal. And when I'd written it, I'd only been here for a few months. Um, of course, the city contains so much more than the kind of aesthetic of the lives and places that I described in the poem, but hopefully I got at something that's recognizable for people who spend any time here. And recently I've also been thinking about how much the city is changing and how it will continue to change. There's kind of been unprecedented rises in the rental market and in the real estate market fueled by um, speculative housing, just like the rest of Canada. So I wonder how neighborhoods are changing and how the texture of the city will change as people are pushed out. Mile End. From Montreal, the dead watch over the city. Perched on tombstones, they hum vespers and chew on autumn leaves. Down St. Denis, the rush hour cortege caravans past cafe patios where October beer foams from pitchers. On St. Laurent, sprawls of vintage shops proffer fox fur, 
faded denim jackets, military boots on eyelets. The dead thrift hop and smell the soles of sneakers or finger the breast pockets of corduroy blazers in search of their old lives. They hunt in vinyl record shops for songs they fell in love to. Raymond Levesque trances and Lagique fiddle dances. A construction crane in the distance, a giant tone arm in the sky. Hipsters vibrant with color, prowl memories fabric for discounted gems, pull stories from hangers, a rattle of coins on glass counters, and they vanish on 10 speed bicycles. The dead follow their old scarves wrapped around cyclist necks and are whisked along St. Viator and Clark, or sit on handlebars and fill with great elan. At night, they walk hand in hand with dead cheris on old tryst strolls, riding Laurent's Ferris wheel in silence and crossing bridges of reminiscence to school mornings when they iron sweaters and wool cardigans, sewing back buttons on reversible vests. A time before their clothes were ironic and it was cool to look poor as a poet. Now the dead smile and hitch a ride on the brim of a hat or a sleeve of a coat back to their graves. That was Yusuf Sedi with his poem Mile End from his debut collection of uh, uh, poetry called Pluviophile. I don't think it was his intention, but I am craving a poutine and a all-dressed hot dog. Yusuf is one of three Canadians shortlisted for this year's Griffin Poetry Prize. You'll hear from the other two shortlisted poets in the coming days. We're going to find out next Wednesday who takes home the $65,000 prize. Elton John sings the kinds of songs that people turn to in the best and worst moments of their lives. And for that, he's won Grammys, Oscars, Tonys. He's sold more than 300 million records, including the biggest selling single ever, Candle in the Wind. And on June 25th, Elton John, along with his husband, David Furnish, will host YouTube Pride 2021, a virtual Pride celebration live streamed on YouTube. Last year, Elton John postponed dates of his final farewell tour because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but he will be back on the road later this year for those remaining dates. Tom Power had the chance to catch Elton John between tour dates last fall, which was around the same time that his new memoir, Me, came out. Here's their conversation. Elton John, welcome to Q. Thanks for, thanks for making the time. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. So I want to play you something. We had uh, your partner, Bernie Toppin, on our show not that long ago. I wanted to play you something from our conversation. Uh, Take a listen to this. Obviously, when I write something, I have a preconceived idea of where I think it should go because I have a melodic idea in my head. But once it gets in his hands, it could go totally a 360 and go somewhere else. So for the most part, yeah, it it usually turns out to be better than what I'd imagined. That's Bernie Toppin talking about his musical partnership with Elton John, who's my guest. Elton, what's it like hearing that? Um, I I get asked this question a lot. Does Bernie always like, has he ever argued or said he didn't like something that I've written to his lyric? And the answer to that is no, he's never said anything, although he must have felt sometimes, as he says in that quote, um, 
that he has an idea uh, of what the melody might be. And I sometimes go, obviously, I have no idea what his melody is, but I go along with mine. And to his credit, he's never actually said, I, no, I don't like that. Um, it was very kind of him to say that. Um, that obviously is going to be times, you know, when I'm writing to his lyrics, that he, because he's much more musical than it was when he started out writing at the very first in the 1967, um, He's much more sophisticated now, so you know it, it probably comes as a bit of a shock, but um, it's worked out really well. He's never he's never said anything that he didn't that he didn't like anything. Um, he's never even been sulky or suggested that he didn't like anything. So you know, in in that fifty three years of writing, that's a pretty amazing thing to happen, and that's why we've lasted such a long time. That's why our relationship flourishes, and that's why we love each other. What what is it about that relationship that keeps keeps you coming back? I think the fact that we don't see each other a lot. I mean, I did an album called Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dot Cowboy, which, of course, he came up with the title. Um, I was Captain Fantastic and he became the Brown Dot Cowboy. Um, very, very um, perceptive of him to uh, think of that. Um, and he lives in California most of the time, and well, all of the time, and I live in um, England most of the time. So we don't see each other very often. But I can honestly say that in the last three or four years, we've gotten closer and closer um, because of his family and uh, my family and the children. Um, and, you know, we're in a wonderful, contented place. Um, he was extremely happy with the film, I think, because in the film, he's portrayed by Jamie Bell and his character comes across as the glue in the movie that holds my life together. And that's the way it's been. He was the constant there. The life changed so many people came, people went, but Bernie was always there. And Bernie, you know, was always there for me without judging me. I don't, and, mean, um, I, I don't mean to be playing a version of the dating game with you here, but I, I asked Bernie... Um, you know what? What song is the perfect example of that magic that exists between your two relationship? Before I tell you what he said, I'm, I'm wondering what you think. Um, well, we all fall in love sometimes. From Captain Fantastic, with my choice. Wise men say it looks like rain today. It crackled on the speakers and trickled down the sleepy subway train. Heavy eyes could hardly hold us Aching legs that often told us It's all worth it We are fall in love sometimes it's, it's a great song. His, his, his answers were your song and sacrifice. And you can tell everybody This is your song It may be quite simple but Okay. Pretty good. Yeah. I think those were the right answers, all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> if Alex Trebek was here, I think we'd, we'd, we'd win the Daily Double. Good. Um, there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> in, in, your, in your new memoir uh, called Me, congratulations on the book, by the way. Thank you. you. You write about the time in the late 70s where Bernie gave you the lyrics to White Lady, White Powder. A song about a, a cocaine addict, and and you you knew deep down it was about you. What what was that experience like? Um, you know, I was so out of it. I wasn't. I just you know, I just wrote the song. It was just another song for me. Um, I knew it was a, about me. Um, but I still didn't have the temerity to own up to it. Um, you know, that's how um, much of denial I was in. Um, 
I thought it was about Cher. <laughs> <laughs> I blamed it on her. <laughs> Poor thing. Yeah. When, when, when cocaine came into your life, you were on your way to becoming, I mean, the biggest star in the world. But, you know, I, I've read enough books for the show, Elton, to know that, you know, some people shy away from talking about sex and, and drugs and, and partying. But it's, it's something that you talk about openly. And I wonder if that's something you've always felt compelled to do or was that something that be, became more gradual to you? No, I've always tried to be honest. I mean, I think the film was honest, although it was it, it is a fantasy um, based on the truth. The book I was writing for my children because um, I wanted them when they were old enough to read the book and to know what my life was like and the actual truth. Um, I didn't want to write a salacious book and, and, and run people into the ground, but I had to talk openly about my relationship with my mother um, towards the end because it wasn't a very good relationship. It was like oil and water. And she'd done interviews with the press, and, and I, just, I hadn't answered those, and I just wanted to put the record straight. Um, um, I wish my relationship had been better, but I just wanted to put down on on paper what my life had been like, and it was quite cathartic reading it after it was all done and put together. Um, it made me realise, you know, there was a lot I could have said, a lot more I could have put in the book, but you know, it's three hundred and sixty pages anyway, and it's been a roller coaster of life. But what a life I've had! I mean, I've had the most incredible life, oh, yeah. met the most incredible people, survived so many things. Um, because of my determination and my talent, probably. Um, but I'm, I don't lie down and die, although I nearly lied down and died. I, I nearly died when I did the, um, you know, before I asked for help with the addiction. And that was a crossroads for my life, obviously. If I hadn't have done for that, I wouldn't have written the book. I wouldn't be here. So that was a, a big um, um, turning point in my life. It was an epiphany in my life. And when I suddenly got sober and decided to live another life completely, then stuff happened to me that was still bad, but I could cope with it much better. And I didn't have to, you know, run away from it. Um, the reason I, I became a drug addict is because I didn't know how to deal with life on life terms. Mm. And, um, and I was on stage and I got applause and I felt safe on stage. When I came off stage, I was stuck with me and me didn't know how to cope with everyday stuff. And and it's because I was immature, and uh, and when I got sober, I started to be try to become an adult instead of a child. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Power, and you're listening to Q. Elton John is my guest. He's in the middle of his 300-date farewell tour. His musical biopic, Rocket Man, hit theaters earlier this year. And now a memoir called Me is Out Everywhere. I think about that sometimes. I suffer from like a panic disorder. I'm a musician too, Elton. And I suffer from like a panic disorder and I can have pretty bad panic attacks before I go on stage. But there's something about actually being on stage. I never have the problem there. You know? Yep. I'm, I'm not. So, what, what do you think that is about performing that sort of like... You know, when I, you think were, it's be- yeah. I think it's the approval I was seeking as a, car- a child, you know. Um, I got approval and love when I sang at the family gatherings or weddings, and I felt safe and, and, and happy. Um, and then I came off stage and, I, you know, again, I had to deal on what was going on in my life. Um, 
And and it's all it you know you have to do a lot of work on yourself and I did a lot of work on myself when I got sober and um, came to I had to go back and go through my whole life piece by piece and um, you know your childhood affects you so much as yeah. you go older yeah. it's the template of how you live your life and you recover from that and all the damage or the not everyone had a bad childhood people have great childhoods David my husband had a wonderful childhood um, but my childhood was in different era it was in the 50s very conservative people didn't talk about anything not sex didn't show each other affection um, things were very secretive um, and I grew up during that time when children weren't allowed to say anything. They were seen and not heard. Um, it was a different era. So, I mean, I've come to terms with that, that I grew up in an era which I loved because there were so many things being invented, television, washing machines, things like that. It was every week there was something new that was great. But actually, the actual dogma of life inside a family was, you know, you, know, you, you didn't talk about things, you didn't, you know, you didn't talk about sex. You gossiped about your neighbours. If a girl was pregnant, she got sent away. It was that kind of environment. I didn't like that very much. It was it was a fearful environment to grow up in. But it was the environment I had to grow up in. But I, you know, you you go back and you think, well, that's why I became who I am because I was frightened of everything. Did I was frightened. Fear was ruling my life, and so you spend the rest of your life. And I'm 72 now, and I've come to the happiest point of my life where nothing is wrong. But it took me 72 years to be able to say this. Um, but I've done a lot of work on myself, and I loved my life. I've loved it. Even the bad parts have meant if you use the bad parts to get to the good parts, then you're doing something good. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that you you wrote this book for your kids so they can learn a bit about their dad. And, and, you know, while you were telling me that story, all I could think is what a different life your kids are going to be leading than the one you led, even just growing up in the one you grew up in, right? Well, I when I became a dad... Um, and we gave great thought to being a dad. You just don't say, well, it's a great, it's the biggest responsibility in life is raising children. There's no question about it. And if you can leave this earth um, having raised your children well and they're happy, that's the greatest thing you can achieve. Forget your work, forget your you know, talent or anything. The greatest thing for me when I leave this earth is did I give my kids a good life? Did I teach them well? Um, I was determined I wasn't going to hit them. I determined I was going to shout at them. I was going to be disciplined. They were going to be disciplined, but they were going to discipline in a, in a way that we talked about things. And you know, why are you doing this? Why? Do, and I don't want them to live any of, of their life in fear, and they don't. Um, they're amazing children. We have a wonderful relationship with them. And, I, you know, my whole life was built on eggshells. That is a horrible thing for a child to grow up on. And I'm not blaming anyone for it. It was the way it was. Um, but it was, you know... Those eggshells made me more determined than ever to make something of myself. Elton, you've been so generous with your time. And I, I got to tell you, it's been like a real life goal talking to you. Uh, just one thing I want to ask, though. I mean, you opened the show with Benny and the Jets. But the song you decide to go out on is Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. I mean, at, at one point, that'll be the last song you sing on the tour. Why that one? Because that's the title of the song, or the title of the tour. It's like, goodbye. I'm saying goodbye to the Yellow Brick Road. When are you gonna come down? When are you going to um, I'm going back to uh, my plow. <laughs> my plow being my house, I don't know. But it's, um, it's the, you know, I wouldn't close on your song. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road is the one. I go up in the, on, on the elevator and I walk into the screen. And it's the most appropriate song to close with.
Okay, so I know our ten minutes is up, Elton. But I listen. I I'm gonna I'm gonna risk being tackled out of my chair to play you this clip. Believe me, it's worth it. So we had Rod Stewart on cue a little while ago, and we asked him about you. We pulled a few clips of you guys going at each other in the press and got his reaction. Take a listen. First of all, I'd like to uh, thank Rod. We go back a long way, and we've been rivals and competitors ever since in a really good-natured way. For example, once he was playing at uh, Earl's Court, (laughs) and he had a big balloon above Earl's Court promoting his record, and I had it shot down. We have been in contact with each other a lot just lately. I've been emailing each other. Oh, really? Because our albums more or less came out at the same time and comparing how the sales are. And I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going with you dressed like that, I can assure you. Why not? With that on, I'm not going with that hat on. Why not? Look at you. It's a state of my Looks like Dusty Springfield in a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> That's Rod Stewart and Elton John. Rod, when I Google you and Elton John, the first thing that comes up is frenemies. Yeah, frenemies. Yeah, yeah, we're... We're still at it now, you know. I'm probably going to get in touch with him, see how this new album does, but um, not in his good books at the moment. Really? I love him dearly, though. He's a good pal. I'm sure you are. How did that, how did that start with you guys kind of having fun with one another in the press? Do you know, I don't really know. We were both discovered by, once again, Long John Baldry, and, um, you know, Long John gave us our names. I'm Phyllis, and Elton is Sharon. Elton, that's a little <laughs> bit of my conversation with Rod Stewart. What's it yeah. like to hear that? Um, Rod, and, uh, Rod is in the book a lot. He is. Rod has been one of my big friends throughout my career. We've been frenemies for all of our life. We both became successful at the same time in America. Actually, he became more successful quicker. Um, and we've always played tricks on each other. Um, and he's very, very funny. He's got the best sense of humor. We've had so many hilarious times together. We went on safari together. We went to Rio Carnival together. Um, and, yeah, it's... He's just one of these people that when we get together and we haven't seen each other for a long time, we laugh and laugh and we just lethal with each other. He's horrible to me and I'm horrible to him. That's <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Well, Elton, I know you've got about a million of these more to do. I don't, I don't want to keep you. I, uh, Thank you. I just, want, I just want to say, man, thanks for, for, thanks for all the music. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see you soon, hopefully down the road. All right. Thanks, Tom. That is Tiny Dancer by Elton John. Next Friday, June 25th, Sir Elton, to you and me, along with his husband David Furnish, will host YouTube Pride 2021, a virtual Pride celebration live-streamed on YouTube. That is it for the show. Tomorrow, Jason Reynolds. One of my favorite chats of all time, by the way. We're going to replay that because he is climbing the New York Times bestsellers list with a new book and has become one of the most exciting voices in young adult fiction. Jason Reynolds on the show tomorrow. I'm Ali Hassan. We'll see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.